This is Fundraising Radio, and in this episode, our guest speaker is Anastasia Green, the managing partner of Burgundy Capital. And this episode, we're really going to focus on how to find an agent who is going to help you with fundraising and how to not get scammed, because there are hundreds and hundreds of those scammers who say that they will raise money for you for 5% of a success fee. And in fact, what they do is that they just waste your time, sometimes your money. So Anastasia, let's get started by you giving us some background on yourself and on Burgundy Capital. Of course. Hi, everybody. Glad you're here today. And um, my background is coming from tech. I've been in tech for the past 10 years as the product manager, turned into the product-driven CEO, ran my startups in back in Ukraine and then in Silicon Valley, sold one of them, um, then switched to the VC side. Uh, as a part of the Burgundy Capital, as the investment bank, we help um, entrepreneurs to raise capital and also we deal source startups for the several Silicon Valley-based and U.S.-based um, funds and family offices. That sounds really organized. <laughs> so let's start with the. I trained. <laughs> I trained thank, thank you for that. I appreciate that a lot. So uh, let's start by you giving us uh, some idea of how, the steps that you take while you decide if you want to work with a company or not. Of course. Um, you know, there are so many startups out there, and I've been in the startup community for the past six years or even more. Um, and I saw, uh, I guess, thousands, thousands of different startups and companies. And I would say after being in the industry for such a long time, you just get that um, gut feeling, A, for the startup, where you can just grasp from the first set if it's a legit deal or not. Uh, but then you just go into them. You do like a high level due diligence on the company by understanding if they have enough traction to get funded. Uh, basically, our job is to understand if the company is fundable at all at this stage. And then if we see that the company is fundable, how can we leverage their resources? Uh, how can we show their strongest sides and connect them to the right investors that are going to understand this deal and um, make the terms approachable and uh, basically just bright up the strongest sides of the team and the product in front of the investors? So I guess the, the process of understanding that is pretty simple. It's very similar to any VC fund. Uh, we look into the pitch deck. Uh, we assess the team. We always go and we always check LinkedIn. Something, I guess, for the founders to always be aware of that most of the investors do go and do check your LinkedIn pages. So that those pages should represent your best experience and that you're connected to this company, you're focused on this company. Um, then we look at the traction. We work with uh, post-revenue companies, so we would like to see some traction. Uh, we usually work with software companies, so it's a little bit different when you're doing the hardware. The traction works a little bit more different. So traction, the team, the pitch deck, um, the focus on the industry, I guess, uh, industries that we like. So, for example, we wouldn't work with the uh, heavy FDA, needed FDA approval medical uh, company. So we would just pass on that, even if it's a good opportunity, simply because we don't have enough expertise in it. Right. It seems like very few of the people I talk to are willing to do something that is regulated by FDA in any way, which is 
quite sad for people who do those startups. But uh, before we jump into the legal side of this question of uh, helping people fundraise, let's talk a little bit about how you make money yourself. So uh, was there for you, is it a success fee to take any money in advance? How does this work? You know, it really depends on the company uh, because me and my partners were also part of the family office and were investing as the family office in the past uh, two years in uh, more than 65 deals. Um, we do have equity in the companies, so that's something that obviously going to become more liquid uh, later on. Uh, but also throughout this time, uh, often what was happening, we would be either invited to be uh, part of the board or as an advisor, or just consult the company on their strategy. Like my um, business partner, Maria, her background is in finance and VC capital, venture capital. Uh, so she helps a lot with the business development and financial strategy for the company. My background is in product and marketing and product marketing. So we would often add that expertise besides the just actual fundraising. And regarding the fundraising itself, it's really, again, as I said, <laughs> depends on the company. If the company already has a committed lead investor uh, or half of the round raised, we would come in and help to speed up the process and only charge um, the success fee uh, from, the, from the capital that we would bring. If the company is in the early stages of uh, its fundraising, we would usually come in and help um, structure the deal, prepare all the materials, um, create the strategy for the fundraising, understand who are the target investors for this deal, and um, then execute it. And in that case, uh, we would usually charge initiation fee or a um, monthly retainer. That's usually not that high. And then the success fee in the end. We, uh, in a lot of um, investment banks, they charge it's like a common practice on the market, but they usually charge uh, warrants and the equity. But in our opinion, it's not really startup friendly, especially in the early stages, because it just complicates the cup table for the founder and makes it harder to fundraise and to explain it to investors. Right, yeah, sometimes investors are curious about who is working the capital and why is it on the cap table exactly like five years exactly. after the company is started uh so Correct. here let's jump into the legal side of the question and uh there are some so people are deploying their capital i mean they're raising through different exceptions so usually it's regulation d or sometimes now regulation cf uh and some of those regulations don't let uh, people to hire an uncertified broker dealer uh, can we go a little bit in depth into this topic? Like, how do you get with those laws? How do you check it? How do you make sure you're complying with those laws? Correct. Uh, one of the things that most of the entrepreneurs should be aware of, and I noticed often in the early stage, founders don't think about it or they just don't know. But the only way you can um, you can get somebody involved in your fundraising is by them being licensed broker-dealer which means that uh, if you're selling securities in the United States and securities, it's uh, shares, right, your equity, then you have to be licensed broker-dealer. And it means that uh, when the company starts using a third party to sell their securities, um, they have to go through the uh, compliance uh, department of the broker-dealer. Basically, 
what's happening right now in the market, there are a lot of people who were uh, in the startup world or in the VC side of the startup world, and they would come and they would offer their services to the founders and help them through fundraise by reaching out to the investors, uh, connecting them to the investors, or even, you know, running ads um, for the fundraising campaign. Um, That can get you in trouble because um, if, A, you can get um, capital from non-accredited investor, then the investor will sue you, and U.S. law protects uh, individual investors much more than it protects, um, um, sorry, not accredited, but the uh, institutional investors like venture funds. So you can get in um, a long and expensive lawsuit if you get capital from somebody who didn't pass the due diligence. What broker dealer does, it uh, makes sure that your deal is compliant, A, so that you go through the due diligence, your company goes through the due diligence, and then that only accredited investors can put money into the deal. And the broker dealer becomes that responsible party in the case of any um, lawsuits or anything that happens down the road. And again, especially in the early stages, that could be a trouble because if you get into the, um, you get capital from Joe, <laughs> uh, that's uh, some other David, let's say, uh, and I'm totally coming up with names, uh, introduce you to. Uh, and down the line, let's say two, three years from now, uh, this Joe that gave you money through David decides to sue you for something that, for example, he decided that your promise of return on investment was higher than he's getting at the moment. Or for example, he could uh, come up with the email from you where you were saying that your exit strategy is to target certain exit in let's say four years from now, and this is not happening. So he has the right to come back to you and uh, sue you for this, for that statement. And that's gonna be a long and painful experience for you. So that's why, be careful with who you're working on uh, regarding your fundraising, because in case of um, not having somebody who is licensed, you are basically getting in trouble, um, uh, in the potential trouble of um, dealing with that uh, law, with deal- dealing with the U.S. law. So, and then there are different, as you mentioned, regulations. If you're fundraising through the uh, Reg D, it has a cap. I think right now it's one point to something it's a it's a not it's not a round number which is very uh creative of our government (laughs) yeah but it's basically you can raise up to 1.2 million which is a great way to go if you're right raising for an early stage company if you want to get crowd involved if you are ready to deal with uh, multiple investors there's a lot of platforms that can help you do it um regarding the compliance in that case um the broker is the platform because they are responsible for the due diligence and they are responsible for um, letting only accredited investors to invest in you. But if you need to raise more than that, you have to go with the regular fundraising and then you need to bring on board uh, institutional capital. And in that case, you have to work with the licensed broker dealer. Got it. Yeah, that's that's a good advice. Uh, so what should people do who are not so you said that you're usually taking uh, after revenue projects and what should people do if they are pre revenue, but they still want to raise money and they don't really want to go through uh, accelerator. 
Uh, do you want an honest answer or inspirational answer? Uh, not inspirational. We're, I really like <laughs> when my speakers say some dark stuff because I think that many of startups think of this world in a like, really nice way, which is not quite the truth. So just go with an honest answer for sure. Um, well, I would say the best advice I could give to the entrepreneurs as being an entrepreneur myself if you don't have the revenue yet, go and make yourself revenue. <laughs> work on your company, work on your product. Um, there are um, different ways you can raise capital in um, prayer revenue. Usually it's the um, FFF, right? Around uh, friends, family, and fools. Um, because there are just simply no numbers that can prove that your company is going to be successful. And... Uh, Institutional investors, they operate as people from finance world. They look at the numbers. By the time you're getting institutional capital, VC capital, um, it should be clear that if you put $1 into this machine, you're going to get 3 or 5 or 10 out. And that's the numbers that investors, professional investors, are looking for. So in case if you don't have the revenue yet and you think that you are, you are not able to get uh, to any revenue without the external capital, then you have not that many options, but you still have options. You can go for uh, crowdfunding. You could go for uh, something like um, Kickstarter campaign or uh, Indiegogo campaign, basically raise from the people, raise from your consumers. Um, then you can go to your family. Then you can go and look for the loan. Uh, from the bank, that's going to be a little bit more complicated because if oh, it's yeah. a startup, it's a risky investment and usually that's not something you can get. Um, uh, another option is uh, go and look for a grant from an organization of the government. Uh, but my advice, uh, if you're pre revenue, don't waste your time on uh, fundraising among VC investors, simply because they will be waiting for numbers. The responses you will be getting will be, Oh, that's amazing. Great idea. Um, <laughs> come come back to us a little bit later when you have some numbers. Oh, yeah. Um, or, yeah, we're definitely going to invest as soon as you hit this number. <laughs> you know, so I heard yeah. this response so many times. And I mean, I, I got it myself when I was raising my early rounds. Um, I would come to the investor and they would be like, we love your idea. We're ready to invest as soon as you have 25K MRR. And I would be like... Uh, like would be like uh, 1,000 MRR at that point. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, so that's very like, encouraging to hear. Yeah, you know, duh, it's obvious. If I'm going to have 25K MRR, like almost any VC would like to invest in the early stage. So, yeah, um, don't waste your time um, simply because it's, it's not the way um, the venture capital investors invest. They need numbers. They need traction. Right. Yeah, that's that's a very valuable advice. Instead of taking time to fundraise, just focus on creating revenue. Uh, so here, after this a little bit darker part of our episode, let's move on to something positive and encouraging. And let's talk about some of your success stories. So how you raised money for someone who shouldn't have gotten money because of their poor numbers or something like that. Something positive. Positive. Oh, my God. I, actually, the other story, the other way story comes to my mind uh, and unfortunately I can say uh, I can share the name of the company um, but um, 
you know, it's it's honestly, it's interesting how fundraising works because we think that it's all so straightforward that um, the success comes with uh, um, capital that you wanted to raise, but often it works, you know, how um, Christian people say that uh, God works in a mysterious ways. So I would say that so fundraising works in a mysterious way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you um, basically in one of the examples, uh, the company was raising uh, five million dollars and um, sorry, they started from raising two point five million dollars. They started raising and the fund um, that is very, very focused on this industry told them, uh, guys, you should raise um, five or seven uh, and we will put two point five out of it, but we're not going to lead. We're committed to this capital, but we need more investors in this round. And the company had uh, tremendous traction. It was uh, more than a million dollar a year um, revenue, and they were growing at 30% a year. Uh, so everything seemed more than legit for the fundraising. And then as uh, we started helping this company and uh, talking to more investors in the industry, it was a very niche uh company and there are not that many funds that invest in that specific industry what we learned that um the funds are just responding no to this deal and we couldn't understand why like on numbers everything seemed so so great but then we went back in history uh and basically five years ago it was a very similar company that raised capital and then um failed poorly because the numbers wouldn't match. It was just, it was a good um, business in terms of the uh, capital generating. It was a cash positive, cash flow positive, but it was just not the venture multiple. That's why all the funds learning from that deal know that in this specific industry, you can't, um, you can't make the multiple that the founders are looking for. But the good outcome of the story that one of the funds, the partner of the fund, um, is extremely focused on this uh, business and knows it so well. So he has stepped in um, and gave his own capital to the company and they changed the strategy. They decided not to go the VC route, not to focus on a uh, hyper growth, but focus on cash generating um, business. So by the end of the day, they got capital. They didn't dilute their, um, their company, their equity, and they grew 60% in the next year after that partner joined board. So, you know, it's, I would say it's like, you know, it's not something that they expected, but at the same time, uh, it became a success story for the founder because now, mm -hmm. you know, they're not burning, trying to show um, way too big growth. They didn't lose their equity and they still move forward with their business. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a really positive story. I'm glad to hear that. So now again, from the positive to negative, how did fundraising change because of the coronavirus and because of the crisis that outbreaking because of the coronavirus outbreak? What's happening now? Right. What should founders do? Constantine, you're just driving those uh, emotional waves of the audience. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> okay, coronavirus coronavirus um you know it's good and bad um i just gave another talk uh on this specific subject uh, just a few days ago and um it's definitely gonna clear out a lot of the market um simply because companies that were that would get capital otherwise because there was more early stage capital uh, than the good companies probably won't get them 
get it because um, a lot of angels are pulling out capital from uh, risky investment, which makes you know, it makes perfect sense because if we're going towards recession uh, or just let's not call it recession, let's call it market downturn, right? Yeah. Um, you would uh, try to stay in cash and you would try to invest only in something that is less risk um, than the startup which obviously takes a lot of capital out of the uh, early stage investment. And uh, if you look at the numbers of the recession, the angel, sorry, not angel, the early stage investment fell uh, 30% when later stage investment fell, um, I think 17 or 15. So as you can see, it's almost double um, of what's gonna disappear for the early stage investment. But there are certain industries that are thriving. Like if you look at food tech, for example, right now, um, the company, um, I think it's called Farmstead, uh, has 70% growth uh, in uh, food online and grocery uh, orders. Um, if you look at um, health tech, um, telehealth is growing. Most of the companies are reporting uh, like 30, 40% growth just in the past uh three months that are happening because of the coronavirus if you look at uh digital transactions and fintech um companies the transactions obviously because of the quarantine are growing and a lot of consumers don't want to touch atm so they're switching to digital transactions uh downloading apps like venmo and uh re-engaging with uh paypal and any new ways to do the digital transactions and send money abroad and all that. So all the companies, not all, but a lot of companies in uh, FinTech are growing as well. And I think um, there are just so many opportunities, you know, like Zoom party, um, it was something <laughs> <laughs> like, as, as I read it yesterday, like a Zoom party, two months ago, Zoom party was a bad joke of the introvert. And now it's a real thing for everybody, <laughs> you know, so just like we're seeing this new phenomena and new consumer behavior uh, which in my opinion creates so many opportunities for entrepreneurs uh, if only you can stay focused on the consumer needs and what's gonna play in the long term not just the short term um, then you you're gonna be successful and there will be no problem in raising capital just as always focus on solving real problem and show traction nice i like how you made the the sad story into more positive story so i think <laughs> if no one from the audience has any more questions we'll wrap it up here and thanks a lot anastasia i really love the part with the dark side of startups and certainly love the part where we got into the legal side of fundraising uh i think it's really important for founders to know that there is uh, there are specific laws and if you don't follow those laws you're you might be screwed so just be aware of that. All right. Um, Absolutely. Actually, I think we got a question. Uh, yeah, yes. uh, we got a question from Sunil. He wanted to ask a question about grants. Go for it, Sunil. Unmute yourself. So one question I had about grants is um, when one reviews, I guess, the grants that are kind of available through governments, um, mostly like the US governments, they're always like really specific. And sometimes there's kind of a partial match between like what your company is capable of doing and what the grant is looking for. Um, in the case of like jobs, you know, 
even if one doesn't match every single credential that's listed, there just isn't someone that can kind of meet all of them and they're willing to like move forward. In your experience in like applying for grants and helping companies apply for grants, to what extent do you need to like match all the requirements that are kind of set forth by the grant? That's a great question. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, unfortunately, I personally haven't uh, submitted companies for the grant. My only experience comes from talking to founders who had grants. And <laughs> what I saw is 90% of the time they are working with a third party that is helping them to apply. Um, that that third party is usually working with uh, several specific grants institutions, so they know exactly what they're looking for. And unfortunately, as you said, there are so many criteria that you basically just need to, you know, make your story, like add to your story <laughs> to be able to match uh, the grant criteria. And then one of the advices, I guess, that I would love to give uh, just from the uh, experience of the quite close experience that I had with the company I was advising that had a grant, got it from the government. Uh, they got the grant that had so many strings attached, so much reporting uh, after getting the grant that they just spent incredible amount of time just doing that reporting and trying to keep complying with the grant criteria that was pulling them away from the main vision of the company that they have. So it was slowing them down instead of speeding them up. Uh, but there are grants that are not that limited and you just have to, like really when you're applying, yes, look into the criteria, but also look into the uh, reporting for that grant, which is even more important than uh, the criteria itself. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's a good response. And grants are actually dangerous. Uh, mixing government and startup is a weird mix, uh, but might work sometimes. So I already gave my wrap up speech. Thanks everyone for joining in today. Thanks Anastasia for sharing your experience and have a great day. Thank you guys. Have a great weekend. Thanks. No questions. You really saw it's the end of the episode? Nope, not yet. In these uncertain times when a weird virus is spinning out of control and investors are trying to figure out where to put their money and not to lose it all, I have an answer. Invest in human capital. I will be among the first 10 people to participate in something called human IPO. So shortly about how it works. You can buy futures on my time now when it costs just $100 per hour. And when I become Mark Zuckerberg 2.0 and my time is worth uh, $1,000 per hour, you can sell it or redeem it, either making 10x return or bringing me to your firm as an advisor or speaker for a few hours. My offering is not live yet, so now you can only subscribe to my updates, but please do so and become the first one to buy my time when my offering goes live. To sum it up, in dark days, buy time, not toilet paper, and your money won't be flushed into the toilet. I'll leave a link to my profile on Human IPO in the description of this episode. And thanks again for listening to Fundraising Radio.